What Christmas traditions does your family have? My family had a few growing up, but we had a unique one. Our Christmas morning would progress much like many of yours do, I would imagine. We'd wake up, eat breakfast, Dad would read the Christmas story from Luke 2, then we'd open presents. Maybe that's where many of yours ended. Ours did not. After that, my mom would have always point out a little 3 by 5 card nestled somewhere in our Christmas tree. And on that card would be a set of cryptic instructions. A clue, as it were. And this clue would lead to another clue, which would lead to another, which would lead to another. It's like a scavenger. And usually the clue would rhyme in some silly way. Maybe something like, Christmas trees are green, violets are blue. If you're really smart, go head to the loo, or something like that. So then I'd have to go to the bathroom to find the next loo. <coughs> they did this a few years ago for our kids, and now our kids love to do this for us. Even if it's like a random Tuesday night in March, I'll come home and I'll find them feverishly writing some clues out and letting them out of the house. When I was a kid, this annual scavenger hunt led me to all kinds of places. Inside the house, outside the house, in the attic, in the basement, in the loo, wherever. Uh, but, but year after year, it always led me back to the Christmas tree. While I was off, off in pursuit of the next tip, one of my parents would slip back to the Christmas tree and place this round box in the Christmas tree. Then they'd act like it was there the whole time. Like I had just missed it during the first program. And they still do that sometimes, which I'm like, Mom, I'm in my mid-30s now. I think I know if it was there or not. Well, in that brown box was the ultimate gift for that particular Christmas season. Sometimes it was cash. Sometimes it was something that I had really wanted. But the whole episode built up until this, this last moment when I opened the round box. This was the reveal I most looked forward to on those Christmas mornings growing up. All the other gifts were great, but they all kind of paled in comparison to what was coming there at the end of the round box. How about you? I wonder if you're giving away something epic this year. What's in that box under your tree right now? That's going to be open last because it's the best. You're probably sitting there right now, listening to the glow of those lights. Are there Apple products in there? Some of you are trying desperately to engage your poker face right now. Not let your spouse or your kids know what's in that box right now. You know, every time a, a splashy new Apple product hits the market, the high rollers are invited to town. The big spenders. I mean, like the true movers and shakers of our society. Apple knows how to put on a show. Steve Jobs introduced the inaugural iPod and iPhone and iPad and Apple Watch, etc. to crowds filled with important, high-ranking, and wealthy <coughs> And rightly so, these were revolutionary products that deserved the glitz and glam that they got. They were announcements worth celebrating. But there is another announcement, made long ago, that far outweighs the importance of debuting wireless headphones. FaceTime or Face ID. And it didn't come with all the glitz and the glam that those biggest Apple news drops did. The best news ever wasn't introduced to power players, power players, to spenders. It was introduced to the lowest rung of society. 
a teenage girl with no clout, no power, no influence. He was brought to a 20-something carpenter with calloused hands and a bruised thumbnail. This news did not come in flashing lights, but it came in an unsuspected way, unexpected way, to unsuspecting people at an unexpected time. But before that news was even a whisper, there was a promise. Two weeks ago, before our amazing time in the baptismal waters last week, two weeks ago, we learned from Psalm 89 that God had made a promise. But the man who had penned that psalm, if you remember his name was Ethan, the man who wrote that psalm looked around. And from his perspective, God was coming up short on his end of the deal. He hadn't followed through on his promises. God had made a promise that he hadn't kept. Ethan was frustrated and saddened by this. But today, I hope we all see that although the circumstances appeared absolutely hopeless, God hadn't actually turned his back on his people. So today's big idea is simple. The big idea is just a way to kind of encapsulate what we're going with the sermon today. The big idea is this. God always keeps promises. Really simple. God always keeps promises. So picture Mary, right? A teenage girl, minding her own business, planning for a wedding. She was engaged. <coughs> Invitations were probably already sent out. The big day was quickly approaching. When out of nowhere, one of God's angels appeared to her and told her something that would change her life and flip the whole world upside down. Still has ramifications today in this room right now. He came with news that was absolutely baffling. It was an impossible message. Far too much to believe. Now, if this is suspicious to you, I would wager that there's some people in here that this is just really, really suspicious. If you've never seen an angel before, first you're a good company, okay? Second, just because you've never seen an angel doesn't preclude the possibility that they do, in fact, exist. If you don't count yourself as one who believes the message of the Bible, I'd encourage you to not too easily discount stories like this. Just because you've never experienced what the text communicates today doesn't mean that it didn't actually happen. Doesn't mean that Mary didn't actually come face to face with an angel. There are a million things that you've never experienced or observed firsthand that you still believe in. So this morning, I would encourage you, just, just for a moment, set aside your skepticism for a few minutes and see if God may grant you faith to believe in this epic story of the impossible, of God become man, of the incomparable incarnation of God in Jesus. So on that first Christmas, the first thing we'll see this morning is that an unlikely light Disperse the gloomy clouds of night. Perhaps you recognize that line from the old Christmas hymn. An unlikely light dispersed the gloomy clouds of night. Many of you know that we recently just bought a dog. She is the literal centerpiece of our home. You can take that as you want, okay? The bags under my eyes are all her doing, guaranteed. When we showed up at the family's house that we bought this dog from, her name is Charlotte. Sweet Charlotte. When we, when we showed up, we were met by her proud owners, who proceeded to tell us about the decades of amazing 
pure breeding that eventually produced Charlotte. Sweet Charlotte. Well, much, much to my dismay, the pure the breed, the more valuable the pups. At least according to their owners, right? The world of dog breeding is brand new to me, and I'm learning a lot these days. I want to be really careful here about how we transition this illustration back to Jesus. But Jesus was the purest of the pure breeds. There's been none pure. There couldn't be. He was very God of God. And yet, his humility is striking. If you were evaluating the value of Jesus based on the men and the women in his ancestral line, in his family line, you may be tempted to marginalize him, to kind of avoid eye contact while walking by him and keep moving. You see, though Jesus himself was unsullied and completely, supremely glorious, he did not come from a long line of upstanding, outstanding, God-fearing people. Jesus' family origins, on Joseph's side, they can be tied back to the royal line of King David. But, it's important for us to get this one, but the true sort of in-the-weeds, generation-to-generation evolution of his ancestors is lined with murderers, adulterers, incestuous people, rebellious people, vengeful people. The story of Jesus' family line spins quite a tawdry tale. And we won't delve into all of it today, but I'd like to just share some quick highlights for you. We didn't read verses 1 through 17, but I just want to dip in a couple places real quick. If you look, for instance, in verse 3 of chapter 1 there, Matthew chapter 1, you see that this woman named Tamar is mentioned. She is the subject of what is perhaps the Bible's most lurid story. It's found in Genesis 38, if you want to read it later. Genesis 38 relates the story of her ancestress liaison with her father-in-law, Judah, after he had failed to fulfill his obligation to provide her with a child. She and Judah are both Jesus' ancestors. Or take, for instance, Rahab in verse 5 there, who was a well-known prostitute. From her offspring would come the Messiah. Or think of David himself, who committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed as a cover up. The Redeemer would come from this lying, murdering, adulterer's family. Or consider Joseph, his father. What he lacks in obscenity, he makes up for with mediocrity. Sure, there's no checkered past that we know of about Joseph. But there's nothing remarkable about him either. If you were coming, like Jesus, to make a splash in the world, to make a mark, you would never choose to be born into a family like Joseph's. So whether they were unremarkable people or people of disrepute, we find this unlikely light bursting through the clouds of night. Nobody imagined the Messiah would come from a line of misfits, but he did. So what's the point? Here's the point. No matter how dark your past, no matter how broken your life right now, there is absolutely no situation that is beyond redemption. Not when God is in it. Have you committed adultery? Have you hated and lied and cheated your way through life? Have you murdered? Have you done worse? God redeemed and used people like that to bring about the Messiah of the whole world. He'll use you too. 
recently I read this clever reworking of an old Christmas hymn. It's one we've sung together in the recent season, and I think it encapsulates well some of the emotions that we're meant to feel when we read through a sordid genealogy like this. Like this. O come, all ye faithless, joyless and defeated. O come ye, O come ye, Bethlehem. If you're just new to that hand, that's not actually how good it's not that close. It's taken from O come, all ye faithful. But why should we come to Bethlehem this morning? It's because that's what Jesus is. It's where God became man. It's where Jesus said through proclamation and through demonstration that Christmas is for the weary, for the messed up, for the broken. If your line isn't it, if your life isn't Instagrammable, Christmas is for you this morning. I mean, just look at Jesus' family line. But here's the news. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Indeed, on that first Christmas, the light of the world came from an unlikely source to disperse the gloomy clouds of night. But also on that first Christmas, the impossible became possible. Find this in verses 17 and 18. When God shows up, the impossible becomes possible. So I want us to notice something pretty subtle here in the text. If you just plug in with me for a moment. But it's really telling. And it's it's rooted in some of the word choices that Matthew uses in the first 16 verses. Just as an example, look down there at verses 2 and 3 with me, if you will. I'll read it for it. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. If we were to keep reading, you'd notice that same pattern continuing all the way to verse 16. Almost like lulls you to sleep, right? But if you read the end of verse 16 carefully, you will certainly and yet subtly be jolted out of your sleepy state. And it's because of this. We, we, sh we should be wary of dismissing these genealogies as boring and irrelevant as a way to start the story of Jesus because they're not. They're not irrelevant, they're not boring. They're important, if not a little bit monotonous. Here's why. Take a look. Look, look at verses. Uh, look at verse sixteen b. So verse verses one through sixteen a all use the past tense, but active verbs. So you're gonna plug in for a second. Sorry. Past tense but active verbs like this. Abraham was the father of, or Abraham fathered. Past tense Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. So the pattern goes on to verse sixteen. And then the pattern breaks, and here's where we should take note of verse sixteen. We get a past, but a passive verb. And this is really important. This is huge. Look at the end of verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So Matthew is subtly implying something here in the words that he's choosing. He's implying that Joseph is not the father of Jesus in the same way that all of these other fathers were fathers of their children. There's something different. And I think he's implying something even a little bit Further, that there was a divine activity at play in the birth of Jesus. He's saying that Jesus was born from Mary in a supernatural way that's about to be explained in verses 18 to 25. So verse 18, you look at Before Mary and Joseph came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. So I want to encourage us this morning. 
this Christmas, let's not forget the mind-blowing wonder of the Christmas story, the glory of it. One time in history, that's what verse 18 assumes here. One time, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. In the lives of real people, one time in real history, a woman conceived without ever being with a man. It means there was a day in real life when Mary discovered that she was pregnant. A day when that news blew her mind too, because she knew that she had been with a man. A day when her heart was full of fear about what her daddy was. And her heart was full of fear about what Joseph was going to do. It's an impossible story. And yet it happened. Because God showed up. So when, when Joseph hears the news, he's, he's, he's probably in disbelief. And probably deeply grieved, too. The one he pledged his life to, and was eager to marry, she cheated on him. She was pregnant. See, I'd imagine that he probably didn't even believe Mary. Pregnant by the Holy Spirit? Right. Heard that one Perhaps that's the response of, of your heart today. I hope not. I hope you'll legitimately explore the claims of the Christian Bible. Or maybe today you don't have a hard time believing these claims, that God could do this for Mary. But would he ever do the impossible for you? You doubt it. So you've become cynical. You've stopped reading your Bible. You've stopped prayers. You've stopped believing that our God is the one who can make the impossible possible. So I encourage you this morning, Christian, look at the story with fresh eyes. Acknowledge that God can do what he wants, when he wants. And then can I encourage you to plug into this, to this power source? Can I plead with you to get on your knees and continue begging God to save the souls of your sweet Kids, or to rescue the hearts of your unbelieving neighbors, or to give you the wisdom to sort through that really complicated financial situation that you're in, or to understand how to best approach that unjust boss of yours, or to give you the strength to bravely continue to fight against that sin you just can't shake day after day, or to give you the stamina to be the godly rock in that relationship that is just falling apart. Jesus really is the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to his power and work in us. Plug in that power. In any case, Joseph, he was an honorable man. He was intent on divorcing Mary quietly. He didn't want to make a scene and embarrass her. In the midst of his making plans to divorce Mary, he laid down the seat. This was no ordinary nap. When God shows up, the ordinary becomes extraordinary. In Joseph's very ordinary sleep, God steps in with extraordinary news. The unfulfilled was going to become fulfilled. Remember Psalm 89? Everything's unfulfilled, the world's falling apart. God, where are you? What are you doing? So now, during this nap, Joseph gets news that it's all going to change. The unfulfilled is going to become fulfilled. For thousands of years, the seed of a promise had been buried underneath the surface. And much like those childhood Christmases of mine, there had been clues laid out all over 
the Old Testament, all over creation during that time. Maybe not in clever rhymes like mine were written, but the clues were there. If you could read between the lines, you would know that God had amazing plans. And now, now it was time for that seed to bear fruit. It had been nearly 700 years since that promise referenced there in verse 23. It says this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So 700 years since then, and then thousands more than that since the initial hints of a Savior surfaced back in Genesis 3. The Savior was coming. And according to this vision that Joseph had, he was coming soon. The unfulfilled was becoming fulfilled. It had been a long time, excruciatingly long. But God was coming, and finally the promise was fulfilled. It was going to be. So the incarnation this morning, the incarnation, God becoming man. The incarnation demonstrates that God will always come through on what he promises. God always comes through on what he promises. So if today, if you're waiting for something, if you're waiting for God to act, I encourage you not to lose hope. Don't think that he's forgotten. Appearances can be deceiving. Look, Mary wasn't expecting this news. Joseph had just laid down for a nap, and he got it. Then this magnificent news breaks through the mundane at an unexpected time with the best news of all time. The God who had flung the planets into space was making himself small, coming to earth as a baby. Finally, the promise was reaching fulfillment. And what was that promise? In a word, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God had come to us and he had become touchable, seeable, knowable. God with us. It's our fourth point for this morning. The untouchable became touchable in that first verse. Verse 23 again. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The king of the universe, once wrapped in robes of eternal, unapproachable light, in the splendor of heaven, on an unrivaled throne, would himself have to be swaddled, to keep warm, to feel safe. Count saviors. We count God's fingers and toes. The omnipresent God, whose glory fills and dwarfs the galaxies, was now confined to this little space of an animal feeding trough, a manger. God would have to learn to walk. God would have to learn his multiplication tables and how to punctuate a sentence. He learned and progressed in his father's carpentry craft. He got splinters and scraped his knees and elbows. It's such an astounding thought. Don't lose the wonder of this Christmas. God had become touchable man. If God had not become man, we'd be without hope. You see, we needed what this boy was destined to become. You see it back up there in verse 21. It's the last thing that we'll discuss this morning. On that first Christmas, the baby came to save He will save his people, the verse says. And the only way he could save his people was by becoming one of his people. And the only way he could save them and us from our sins was to be sinless himself. Jesus was born to die. 
Now look, we're all born with the destiny of death. We're all born destined to die. But none of us in here were born for the purpose of dying. Jesus was the one man, the one person born with the purpose, not just the destiny, but the purpose of death. Jesus' death is life-giving. All those in Christ who have been alive, immortalized, and never fully flourish as loyal subjects of a just and gracious king. So that baby in that manger, that baby's first soft whimper, was God's war cry against the enemy. Launching a global rescue campaign for all that's broken and warped in our world. A baby was born to take the sins of his people, to piece the brokenness back together and make all the sad things come untrue. It's not a fairy tale. It's history. And it's hope for all of us. Today, I hope you know Jesus in this personal and intimate way. I hope this week and next are especially infused with the joy of Jesus. The true joy of Christmas. Every Christmas, those clues always led me back into the tree where the best gift was waiting for me. All those little gifts before, they were just whispers of the, the big one that was coming. During this time of the year, we love to celebrate the gift of Jesus' birth. And it is a gift that's worth celebrating. But it was a small gift that would lead to the epic, incomparable gift. You see, Jesus, his life would also lead him back to a tree, much like my clues did. But his tree was a brutal, violent, bloody tree. This tree would give life, ironically enough, through death. Jesus was born, destined for death on that tree. And so, during this season, as we celebrate this baby boy, let's not forget that he didn't stay a cute little baby. He grew up to be a warrior, and he took on the greatest enemies mankind has ever seen, death and sin. And he fought death, and he beat it, and he gave his life to the public. He gave it to us. J.I. Packer once said of the Christmas story, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. So let's think about it a lot this season. Let's be staggered a lot. Let it stagger you. Let it stir you. Let it fill you. Fuel you. Not fool you. Fuel you. When God came down to man, an unlikely light dispersed the gloomy clouds of night. The impossible was made possible. The unfulfilled was fulfilled. The untouchable became touchable. And the humble Christmas baby became the sin and death conquering Savior. 